We are in the middle of the yugas. <laughs> I don't know if we've made it out of Kali Yuga yet, I can't remember. We're on number 40. We're on page 57 of number 40. We're starting with the word because. Okay? Do we have any leftover comments or questions from last time? All right, take, go ahead, dear, take your seat. Because our present entry into a new age was fundamental to much of what Paramahansa Yogananda taught, I have included this discussion here, making it as brief as possible. New ideas always encounter resistance before they are generally accepted. The very concept of cycles of history is foreign to the West. Even in the East, where it has long been accepted, it is new, as Swami Sri Yukteswar explained it. In India, the entrenched notion is that the world is at the beginning of a long descent into an ever darker Kali Yuga, expected to last another 430,000 years. I mean, it's, it, Swami mentions here, and I said it too, that the Yugas is fundamental to what we're teaching. It's just, there's a few really shifts about reality, and it's about reality, karma, reincarnation, discipleship, of course, God-realization. But the Yugas form an important element in that, and I think I was saying it earlier, I mean earlier meaning last session, because they give you a way to relate to the world around you, which is very, very difficult. We hit it a little bit later in this, maybe it's, in, actually I think it's in a later one, number 42 or 41, about the perfectibility of this world, which we touched a little bit last time, but it's the perfectibility of the material world that is the key element that the yugas provide, because the the inclination to try to seek perfection in the material world, the desire on our own part to have our little corner of it be perfect, plus the expression of compassion for the suffering of others that translates into a desire to make this material world right for everyone. Both of those are actually not spiritually sound ideas. And when we're, when we're working even subconsciously with an idea that is not spiritually sound, uh, we continually run up against a problem, uh, even if we're not even sure why. There's just this uh, wrong expectation that's always there that can never be fulfilled. And this is where the, just the element of jnana has to come in, whether, you, whether you're a bhakti or however you live, to just be able to cognize what's true and discipline your mind and emotions to accept it instead of just continuously and hopelessly thinking that if I just pretend long enough it'll be okay. I have I realize this funny thing about myself. I, I wear this uh, uh, wireless microphone in a little pack and the convenient way to do it is I have a little belt and I hang it on this. And when I sometimes when I was would be lecturing outside of this church here I have this back room where I can do this just it, when we travel and so on and I'd put the belt on and then I went whoever was the cameraman Brian or Tondiva would hand me this camera uh, this uh, microphone piece and I'd have to lift up my tunic and I have trousers on underneath there's nothing immodest about it but it's a not a dignified thing to do and invariably I close my eyes when I do it <laughs> 
I've been doing it for years. And I finally realized, why are you closing your eyes? Well, if I close my eyes, then nobody can see me. Just like a child. You know how little children are? You're embarrassed? Yeah, exactly. But it was in my head. But I thought, that's what we do about a lot of things, isn't it? We just don't want it to be true. So we just close our eyes. And then we have this illusion. And I I just, I believe it. I still close my eyes. (laughs) Even though I know it's different. All right. In March, oh, and I had, we talked last week too about how India is so convinced of a completely other reality. And even the people who are on our path, it's just too inculcated. In March of 1900, Sri Yukteswar organized a procession through the streets of the city of Serampur, Bengal, announcing the advent of the new age of Dwapara. Can't you, don't you just love that? I think we have pictures of that where he, you know, they, he's just announcing the advent. Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. Dwapara has now begun. Certain bystanders actually protested by throwing stones. Mm. We have this romantic idea of how enlightened India is. Mm-hmm. Even today it is difficult to get his unorthodox explanation widely accepted in India. The resistance in that country is on dogmatic grounds. In America it's just because what? What are you talking about? We've never heard of such a thing. America is the apex of civilization. But in India, it's because the dogma is so strong against it. They actually threw stones. Well, I mean, the Master said ignorance is 50-50. And this is actually the whole thing we've been talking about, which is people with entrenched dogmas have that Kali Yuga idea, and they will defend them. They feel like they themselves are threatened if their dogmas are threatened. And it's when your life is threatened, you fight back. We see it all over the place right now. In the West, the objection is more to the fact that Sri Yukteswar's astronomical explanations do not correspond in every respect to the modern scientific perception of the universe, yet his claims are supported by an ever-growing body of scientific evidence. The first objection modern astronomers make, I, I explained this to you, but those who are new, you know, I read these out loud. This one just happens to be pages long, so it's a whole different vial here. I'll stop in a few minutes. The first objection modern astronomers make is to his claim that a dual exists to our sun. Numerous other stars in our galaxy, however, have been found to exist in pairs. The possibility that our own sun has a dual is not dismissed in modern astronomy and has actually come under discussion by serious scientists in recent years, but they haven't been able to find it. And people who are very committed I mean, I'm so um, uncommitted to objective evidence that I, I don't take this real seriously, but people who are serious scientists who have really studied these things and believe that people are being very conscientious or it's quite disturbing to them that this hasn't been able to be verified because there, there's just this feeling that if it was there, we would have found it by now. And so it's a, it's a cause for doubt in the minds of people who think along those lines. The second objection in modern astronomy is Sri Yukteswar's identification of the sun's revolution around a duel with the phenomenon known as the precession of the equinox. His explanation is at variance with scientific orthodoxy, which states that this precession is due to a wobble in the Earth's axis. I'm going to just go right on past that one. It seems premature to be too dogmatic about anything science claims since it has had too often to reverse itself even on some of its basic tenets. 
See, that's where I get cynical. <laughs> well, if you're in an ascending Dwapara age, it's always going to be premature. That's actually true. In a descending age, where you gradually... Yeah. <laughs> it'll be too late. <laughs> you, you have like just a, a moment of shift there at the apex and the nadir, where you've got it just right, and then you, you start going one way or another. Too bad. Anyway, right now it's premature to be dogmatic about anything because they've had to reverse their self on basic tenets. There seems little point, therefore, in insisting strongly that these two differences must be resolved before Sri Yukteswar's theory can be given a respectful hearing, especially since some of his more startling claims have been completely justified after the fact by modern science. For what he wrote in 1894 was at variance with numerous other beliefs of the scientific orthodoxy of his day. Yet on these points he has since been, since been thoroughly justified. I, I, I think it was in one of these Tuesday night classes I was talking about uh, what Purushottama wrote in his book that he's working on about the, the two theosophists who, who internally just meditated and, and perceived the, uh, the structure of the atom and made diagrams and all sorts of things that they did entirely by intuition, um, you know, in the 1800s, late 1800s, before anybody had figured all that out. And then as, as the scientific people from, from looking from the outside in found the same things, they discovered that, that much of what they had said from the inside out was just there. I mean, this is the whole um, game that's being played where science and religion are coming together. Um, the first thing that Sri Teshwar wrote in 1894 was that matter is really energy. And this fact was discovered by science only 11 years later in 1905. Now think about, no wonder they threw stones at him. Think about him just announcing that everything that looks solid is actually just a vibration of energy. I mean, we, we take it for granted now because it's become an accepted sort of tenet of our just whole culture. Because of Einstein, everyone knows it. But everybody didn't know it. Of course, yogis always knew it. It was, it was Vedanta, it was in that side of it, but not just the man on the street just thinking about stuff. Of course it's there. How can you tell me it isn't? Number two, Sri Teshwar described a distant center for the visible stars. The astronomers of his time still believed the universe to be heliocentric. They continued to hold that belief until the 1920s. I mean, just think how much has changed. This is another proof of Dwapara. Um, three, Sri Yukteswar correctly stated that the sun moves. The scientists of his day had no such idea, supposing it to be standing stationary at the center of everything. Just the whole concept of the world, which we talked about last week, was so different. Number four, Sri Yukteswar also described the sun's movement as a sweeping arc its present direction being toward the center of our star system. Astronomers have since discovered, first of all, that the sun does move, and second, that its direction of movement is substantially as Sri Yukteswar claimed. I mean, on what basis was he saying these things? He just wrote them emphatically because he, uh, he perceived reality. Einstein himself did not reason out that, that matter equals energy. He perceived it. That's how it goes. He perceived it, and then it took him many years to make the equations so he could communicate it, but he perceived it first and then, and then uh, reverse-engineered it. <laughs> he went backwards from what he knew. Sri Yukteswar just states it. 
on the basis of his direct perception. Sri Yukteswar's claim, of course, that human consciousness is affected by rays of energy proceeding from the center of our galaxy seems to modern-day thinking impossible of rational demonstration. Yet astronomers have, in fact, discovered that there is a powerful energy issuing from the center of our galaxy, which affects planets even as distant from it as our own. Subtle influences of an energetic and magnetic nature are being constantly discovered in science, a fact which suggests that all natural phenomena are in some way interconnected. This interrelationship was undreamed of even as recently as 80 years ago. I mean, and now it's all about interrelationships. I mean, whether we're talking ecology or whatever we're talking about. Just a moment, I had a thought. What is it? Um, Oh, I just, I, I read this note of the things that I'd written down about Swami, and this was 1994. I guess there were a lot of, um, was it meteors? Something was hitting the planet Jupiter in, in, in during uh, sometime in the fall of 1994. And a, the planet Jupiter in uh, astrology represents the guru. And it was interesting because Swami was writing about how he, could, he was sensing um, a very disturbing energy because of all this assault on Jupiter that was happening in the physical world on the physical planet, but he could feel it creating a certain dissonance. And it wasn't long after that um, the Bertolucci lawsuit was filed, right at that same period of time. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. I think it was actually a little bit in the summer that the, the planet was being assaulted. But he said he was, he, felt he was having disturbing dreams and he could just feel this very dissonant energy. He would say things like that and, and out of respect you would just accept it. But you didn't, I didn't really know what to do with it. I just thought it was interesting. If astrology is at all true, we're talking about the physical form of things in the physical world affecting us on a subtle level. And I've certainly had enough experiences of the accuracy of astrology to not doubt it. Um, then, of course, what happens to those physical things would have to affect us. We're all material bodies. Uh, the the point of astrology being what Master said in Autobiography of a Yogi. You know that this, your fate is not your fate is influenced, but it's not written in stone. It just explains for you what you're dealing with. And he in, later in his life, or at different times in his life. He would pick astrologically inauspicious times in order to and accomplish things during those periods of time just to prove that willpower is greater than any force. But it was harder because things were not going, things were not flowing in the right direction at that point. When you think about things as simple as uh, whether it's a sunny or a cloudy day, what the barometric pressure is, whether it's raining, whether it's snowing, and how... Uh, we are influenced on so many levels just by the influences that we can perceive. It, 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 at what point does that stop? It's, you know, it's just a very good question. At what point? Um, the facts most clearly known to us today concern the events of relatively recent Earth history. They point to a steadily increasing enlightenment in every sphere of activity. Even the increasing licentiousness that is so evident today, which might point to a general moral and spiritual decline or complete collapse, that was editorial on my part, 
seems even more explicable as being due to man's inner struggle, man's inner struggle to come to grips with so many new perceptions of reality. What an interesting comment, isn't it? Swamiji has often said in other places, in another essay about the yugas, he says that the licentiousness, the sort of self-indulgence, the uh, wild sensuality and greed of all kinds that we see happening in our age right now, he says it's just basically man feels all this increase of energy and so he just keeps using it in, uh, he, he just takes more and more energy in the same direction he was already going. It hasn't really yet occurred to mankind as a whole that the purpose of this energy is to go in a direction we haven't gone before. So it, it, all we've been doing for all this Kali Yuga period is thinking physically, living through our bodies, defining ourselves by our physical bodies, living, uh, thinking of life itself in terms of the senses, so now we just have more energy to do that. So we have bigger houses and faster cars and more expensive clothes and um, more um, sexual freedom and drugs and uh, television and, you know, loud music and just everything. It's just everything just keeps ramping up. Um, And uh, we'll see. It's not... uh, It does look like moral collapse. (laughs) But... It, it, according to everyone, it isn't. It's a transition stage. It's a confused transition. I often sort of look around at the increased pace of life and where we're living and the increased materialism. And if, as Master said, what happened there is going to be some cataclysmic break, um, some dramatic break in the direction of our society, whether it happens from the earth, whether it happens from the bombs, whether it happens from the climate, who knows. But if we're forced um, to reevaluate, I think people are just going to think, what were we thinking? You know, what could we possibly have been thinking? But at the time, it, it makes sense to us. We just keep, we don't know what the end of the energy is. Someone said somewhere that the difficulty with moving fast is that after a while, whatever speed you're moving seems natural to you. And to get the same sense of thrill, you have to move faster. And that, that is sort of what, what's happening here. We, we, have, you know, we have shoes that cost $200, and now we have to have shoes that cost $350. You know, we have seven, seven sweaters, we need to have 16. We have two cars, we need to have three. We have uh, you know, a, a, a trip to the lake nearby, so now we have to go across the world. I mean, it's just like it has to be more and more because... We get used to whatever it was. We've lo- just lost. But that's the Kali Yuga Dwapar transition. And in the end, it'll be fine. They all tell us it'll all be fine. It's man's inner struggle to come to grips with so many new perceptions of reality. It's a very insightful way to put it. In one of my books, Swami writes, Out of the Labyrinth, I have explained that the moral dilemma introduced by Einstein's relativity, far from proving, as some writers have claimed, that moral values are subjective, is being resolved in a growing perception that relativity is not chaotic, but directional. The truths that are being perceived nowadays have been leading mankind toward even subtler insights that seem increasingly to have universal validity. 
You know, there's, there's a few, and when I meet them, I like to point them out. A few key principles that Swami offers. One is that values are not subjective, but they're directional. I mean, that is one of the most helpful personal um, compasses that we can have, is to, is to just recognize there's no absolute here. It's not like if I'm not perfect, I'm terrible. Or if I'm not like that person, I'm not any good at all. It's just where am I standing and which way am I facing? And I just need to start moving in that direction. I got a letter from someone who'd heard Swami talk about oh, a certain uh, practice that was appropriate for people in monasteries. You know, just a real um, uh, separation uh, between men and women and uh, just certain rules that would be very appropriate if you're living a, a cloistered monastic life. And this person just wrote, you know, in a panic about their own life because they weren't doing this. And, you know, that's how you feel. You sort of hear a principle and you, you wonder, but you just stop for a minute. Everything's directional. It would be throwing myself off a cliff to suddenly live like that as a married person with children. I mean, that's just not, it's not my instruction. It doesn't mean that it's a wrong instruction. It just means it's not my instruction because it's not where I'm standing. It has no relationship to where I'm going. We have to just, whenever something seems crazy to us on the spiritual path, it usually is. (laughs) Meaning that what we're thinking is crazy. And it's like there has to be this, that's why you have to have a certain amount of psychological health to be a a self-realizationist. And it isn't for people really who are psychologically unstable or have gaps in their psychological development because then you don't have a a point of uh, ego strength in which you can just evaluate. I I remember talking to someone who'd heard some certain instruction of Swamiji's when he was a a young person and he just tried to follow it for the rest of, for years and years and it just was crazy. And he said to me, well, you know, didn't you hear Swami say it? I said, yeah, but it it never occurred to me that it applied to me. (laughs) I just, I never thought that that had anything to do with me because it was so clearly just beyond my ken. I couldn't do it. I couldn't possibly live like that. So it just went in and went out. As Master said, you have to do one one one-hundredth of what he taught. But everybody's different. So he had to teach so many different things. Remember, and I've mentioned it before, but in Swami's commentary on the Gita, he gives precise instructions for how in, when you're a solitary hermit and you're meditating all the time, you can work out the karma of, you can, you can dissolve karma from past lives in vision and you can dissolve past life karma from multiple incarnations at the same time. He gives fairly detailed instructions, fairly detailed instructions. And I I said to him at the time, this won't apply to very many people. (laughs) His response was, yes, but those to whom it will apply, it'll be very helpful. Just so calmly like that. Like, because, yes, it's relevant to someone, but when I read it, I don't have to think, oh, I need to be in a cave somewhere dissolving my karma and vision because clearly I'm in Palo Alto creating it. <laughs> you know, it's just not time. <laughs> I'll dissolve it later <laughs> after I'm done creating it. 
What can you say? Be nice if it were different, but there you have it. Okay. Any comments or shall we scoot on? The rapid advancement of knowledge during recent centuries, and especially today's increasingly widespread reliance on energy, suggests forcibly that what Sri Teshwar wrote, and bear in mind that he was a great master with spiritual insight and no merely intellectual theorist, should be considered no mere theory, but revelation. And that's a very important distinction. You know, intellectual people talk theories all the time. But revelation is something that's quite different. And, you know, it was interesting, um, this uh, uh, attack in Paris that happened. And um, Lakshman wrote to me and asked me, because he, he raised the question of the, I haven't followed the news. You don't have to follow the news in order to know things. You just get it through osmosis. But the sudden dilemma that was facing many of the countries because terrorists were able to come in with refugees. So should the, should the refugees not, to, not be allowed because um, violent people might be coming in with them and they would be jeopardizing their, the country's safety on so many levels? Um, now, just a moment. Let me try to remember. What, oh, yes. Um, and he asked me if, if I'd ever heard Swami say anything about that. Just the question. I, I just, he just wondered. And uh, I, I told him two things that I knew. One was Swami once talked, I heard Swami talk about uh, the Golan Heights after in, in, uh, Israel won the Golan Heights, won possession of the Golan Heights, which strategically are very important because they're, it's a point from which a great deal of damage can be done to the country of Israel. And I remember Swami just saying so... He said it in a way as if he was in charge. That's what struck me. Oh, Israel must never give up the Golan Heights under any circumstances. Just a statement like, you know, we world leaders talking to each other know that Israel must hold the Golan Heights, just strategically. It wasn't even, it wasn't even like he was pro-Israel. It's just like from their point of view, they must hold this now that they have it. And it reminded me that he's been a king of countries, and that's like a sensible remark for him. And the other time was uh, he was talking about some uh, dilemma the Pope was facing. Actually, it was the question of whether or not to maintain a celibate priesthood in the Catholic Church or not. And he said, well, if he dissolves the celibate priesthood, the Catholic Church is finished. And if he doesn't, it's finished. (laughs) And then Swami looked up and he said, I'm glad I'm not the Pope. (laughs) So I said, I think that's how Swami would respond to this. On one hand, if he were the king of some country or the prince or the prime minister, whatever you are these days, if it was really his decision, then he would have to make a decision. But this is the kind of decisions that make you a devotee and not a king because it's just impossible when you're dealing with the material world to try to balance, you know, one extremely important value against another really important value. But the other part of it that I, when I started thinking about it, I said, Lakshman, you and I could just banter this back and forth many, many times. And I could argue this moral point of view, and you could argue that one, and we could talk about this precedent, and you could precedent, and you could talk about that one. I said, but it's all just theory. And it's just an intellectual theory. We're just being theorists. That's what I was remembering. We're just being theorists. This is what I would do. This is what I wouldn't do. 
But when you're actually in a position where, you, where it really is your karma, and you are the president of a country, and you have to make a decision like this, then your whole vibrational relationship to it is different. And unfortunately, most of our leaders in the world are not that elevated. But ideally, when you have to make the decision, if you are the Pope, you have revelation to help you. You don't just weigh theory against theory. And I was realizing in in our lives, even when we're thinking about spiritual things, we mustn't get lost in just weighing one theory against another theory. We have to really make an inner relationship with whatever it is we're trying to understand so we can move from just these are the pros and these are the cons and this is my decision. Uh, because otherwise it is just theory. What's re- what, what's re- what seems like a good idea is really different than what is trying to happen. That's um, Swamiji's you know, motto for Ananda, what is trying to happen. And we, 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 we try to feel things not just from what could we do, but what is really trying to happen on a deeper level. Where is the energy actually going? I mean, so if one was in a position of having to make such a difficult decision, you know, where, where is the energy really trying to go? What is the higher point of view at that time? Does that make sense? I think it's, it, it's just theory versus revelation is a really important difference. Uh, we were talking this morning, too, about uh, just sort of what is our starting point for anything that we do. And it's, it's a good idea if you're a devotee as much as possible to make your starting point as close as you can come to what would Master do or what, did, what would Swami do, what did Swami do, what did Master do in this position, you know, what did he consider to be of value. I was talking about, um, I won't give the whole long story, but at a certain point when, in my 20s when I was cooking for Ananda, Swami took me in hand and taught me how to cook better because I was cooking for a lot of our community and they were real upset because <laughs> I was cooking really badly. And uh, uh, so he taught me how to cook. And because he taught me how to cook and because from that point on I often cooked for him, I, at a certain point in my life, I realized what I had learned is I had learned to cook what he wanted. I mean, not just merely the dishes, but I just cooked in the style in the way that he wanted. You know, there's a certain... Prior to that, I cooked in this fanatical health food style. This is healthy, therefore it must taste good. And if you don't think it tastes good, that must be your problem. It came to a crescendo when I served them continuously kale, which was not trendy at that time. (laughs) Kale is really trendy now, but believe me, it was not trendy. I served them kale and Jerusalem artichokes. A lot. Juice martichokes are not trendy and they're not very good. They're extremely good for you, but they're very difficult to make taste good. Even the best of cooks, I have realized. And I served them a lot because we grew them in the garden. And it was just like, what's wrong with you people? I personally ate them all the time, <laughs> but uh, I was weird. So he had to teach me about taste. He had to teach me that you know, it's nice if it tastes good and it's nice if it's refined and elegantly prepared and so on. And heck, why not? It seemed to me like a much better criteria than the one I was using, which was this kind of theoretical, this is how it should be kind of thing. Just pick it up from the string where he was standing. Why not? 
we're going to be influenced by something anyway. And once you just kind of get that as a devotee, it's not, it's not debilitating. It's actually quite liberating. Uh, I remember when we used to drive back and forth from San Francisco in Ananda Village many years ago, there was almost nothing between... Now there's just all this stuff has been built up, but this was, ha, huh, 40 years ago, quite a long time in the in Dwapar Yuga Rising. And the only place to stop was uh, there was the coffee tree, it was called. There was the nut tree and the coffee tree. And the nut tree was a little pricey, so we didn't stop there. We used to stop at the coffee tree. coffee tree was like a glorified Denny's, really. I mean, it, it was n- much nicer inside, but it was still just a real American, just a real American place. And But we, that was where we'd always stop because it was the only place. And uh, at later, you know, years later when I lived down here, I would go and we would stop there. And people would just look at me like, this is an awful place. <laughs> and it took me a while to realize that it really was an awful place and from the point of view of what we really would have done. But it, I'd been there with Swami so many times. That's where we stopped. And I, that was just the string I picked it up from. And I... It, took, it was a real mental effort to break that association in my mind and see, yeah, that's right. This is like on the table they have a jar of colored sugar crystals. <laughs> I mean, it was like, that was the, the high point of their cuisine. <laughs> but why not? Far better, you know, to have it be like that. Because, who knows? Okay, any comments or questions there? Um, Yogananda sometimes remarked quite casually that in future mankind would see innumerable changes in its way of thinking, living, and behaving, a change toward international and interreligious unity, interplanetary travel, and countless new ways of dealing with reality. Isn't that just fun? In a rather casual way, interplanetary travel and countless new ways of dealing with reality. About traveling to other planets, Master has said quite simply, the obstacles that they see now, there's just other, other solutions that are just completely outside of what anybody's thinking. You know, the, the time element and the distance and all of that. So there's just other ways of doing it. It just hasn't occurred to them yet. I mean, a hundred years ago, who would have thought about computers? And was it IBM that thought, why would anyone ever want a computer in their home? and never went that direction. Is that the right company? One famous company that is less influential now than it used to be had that point of view. Because we just we're not born to it, but the generations that are coming are born to it. There are many of them old Atlanteans. They've been in these high techno ages before. I remember um, Padma's son, who, who, has, who has made a career in uh, the computer world. I think he does computer security, or I'm not really quite sure. But he just always had that kind of a mind. And when he was maybe three, they, for a while they lived not at Ananda Village, but they had a house in Nevada City for a while because um, Freeman was running a, his CPA practice at that time. And uh, they had a, a driveway where the, and the children could play outside. So she put up a gate to keep the children off the street. And it had a... She got this this baby lock sort of thing, you know, a thing that was difficult to open. And she stood in the window and watched her three-year-old son. I think he was about three. He might have been younger. He just walked right up to it. He didn't touch it. He just stared at it for a couple of minutes. Then he reached up and opened it and walked out. 
<laughs> he was born to it. He just knew how to do it. I mean, it wasn't even a computer, but it was just his mind was oriented that way. And as he grew up, he just was oriented that way. I mean, I really do feel that, like my mind is not. I just, I don't quite get it. I, I, I've trained myself to not be completely hopeless. But it just, and, but the other people are just growing up with it. Just like, you know, we grew up with a telephone. We never thought about it. I, I read a Reader's Digest a little thing, one of those little true things. The, the granddaughter's talking to her grandmother and they're sitting in the kitchen. And the granddaughter says to the grandmother, Grandma, what's your favorite appliance? What's your favorite, yeah, what's your favorite modern, modern appliance, she said. And the grandmother walks over and turns on the water. <laughs> you know, from her point of view, that was the finest thing that ever happened. And we've always had running water. Who would even think about it? Who would even think about electric lights? But if you'd been in the transition, you would have. And so we're a little in the transition, but those who are not in the transition, they don't even cognize it. It's just the way things are. And you, you see, there's a lot of implications about that reality, the way things are. I look at uh, Brian McSweeney, who, at, right after he finished college, took a trip around, went to Europe, and then eventually ended up in India, and then got sort of swept into Swami's, got onto Swami's staff because he knew how to run a video camera. That was the external reason, but he got, because it was his karma. And for four or five years there, he just traveled around the world with Swamiji. He just went from country to country, and when Swami would go, and ended up, you know, he just has... He just knows people all over the world and, and has friends, close friends, you know, the Italian friend, the, the Indian friends, the Croatian friends, the Chinese friends, whatever they are. It just seems so natural to him. It doesn't even cross his mind that there's anything unusual about being going all over the world and having friends all over the world and having them all be able to talk because everybody knows English now and have, just have the same context. You know, from my point of view, I've grown used to it. But heavens, I didn't even have a passport till I was in my 30s. What to speak of actually having close friends from another country. But you see what that does about the assumptions of reality that that make? It's like it just grows up with the idea that this is a global planet and people are pretty much the same all over the world. And we're just all going to... I mean, many of you in this room came from somewhere else to be here. And, or, and it's just, this seems so natural. This is the way we're just living. All those assumptions, once they're in place, you see how the world, everything just comes out differently. My sister, when her son was in second or third grade, um, he was in a school in Southern California, which is a very intercultural area also. And she was just curious as to the, how many girls and how many boys there were in her son's class. And the, the roll sheet was on the front. And she walked up and read it but so many of the names were culturally unfamiliar to her, she could not tell. She couldn't tell whether they were boys or girls because she didn't know what the names meant. And that's just where her kid is just being, where all those names are just the names of the kids around him. He doesn't, you know, George, Bob, Sue, Jane, just sort of gone. <laughs> just not there anymore. And uh, all of that lays the groundwork for a, a world that just lives very differently. I'm extremely intrigued by the interplanetary concept. I mean, that's going to be a moment, isn't it? When either it lands on us or we land on it. Somehow or another, I have a hard time 
getting that one. You know, it's just like my mind just doesn't open to that one. Or to me, it just seems inherently like it's going to be so weird kind of feeling. But it's going to happen and it's not going to be. But who knows? For some reason, that one intrigues me. Maybe I've been in that one before or who knows? I doubt it will happen before I die in this body, but maybe in another. Okay, any other comments or questions? We have now finished number 40. We done made it through the yugas. Okay, number 41. I once asked the master, Sir, as we progress into the higher yugas, will the people now on earth continue to be reborn here? No, he replied. I've stated before that there are many populated planets in the universe. When a soul returns from the astral world to the material plane, there are many planets available to it. Where it reincarnates depends on its own level of spiritual development. We talked some about that before, about different planets, different countries, holding vibrations that people, that souls need. He says, he, he says something more about it on the other side, so I'll wait a moment for that. But it's a very interesting way to think about it. It's also a very interesting way to think about where you, found, you find yourself. Because whatever we chose, there are, it is illustrating for us certain realities that are relevant to us, either because we're in tune with them, because we're here to overcome them, because there's certain influences, but there was something about it that um, had something to teach us, because we could have chosen any number of things, including Earth and early Dwapara. I think we followed Master and Swamiji here, and uh, why they came here, I don't know. Isn't it? I have this Earth-centric kind of... uh, you know, like the 49ers are the best football team kind of thing. <laughs> Just this kind of subconscious feeling that Earth is a, a particularly good assignment. <laughs> Isn't that silly? What possible, what possible basis, since I know nothing about the other choices? <laughs> but you just, it's like the familiar becomes, you become identified with it and you become defined by it and it's awful. <laughs> The other thing that people would ask when I would first tell them about the yugas is somehow they had the idea that they could just hold on to this planet, just like grip this planet and ride it into a higher age and that their own consciousness would get expansive just by holding on to it. They, weren't, they were unclear on the concept, such as death, you know, which will take you out and so on. But, but there's still that thought that we're getting better you know, I'm getting better. My consciousness is getting better because the planet is getting better. And we also have to have very clear in our minds these are completely separate realities. The yugas are the backdrop in front of which we act out our personal drama. And we can be the hero or the villain or the, you know, the, the, the wise man or the fool in front of any backdrop. And the backdrop itself is defines the context in which our adventure takes place. But it, it is not our personal adventure unless, unless we make it so, one way or another. Does that make sense? It's a very important distinction. These are all the subconscious influences we hold. See, because a lot of people like to say, humanity is evolving. We talked about this a little last week. Humanity is evolving, and therefore I'm evolving with it. 
And we have a responsibility because humanity is evolving. Well, there is no humanity. There's just a whole bunch of individual jivas moving in and out of bodies. And if it happens to be a particularly good crop because it, it's a, a good cycle in the yuga, it's also, that means that the, the, the planet on the opposite side of that orbit, if it's an inhabited planet, is, is where all the demons are now. Or here, they're here too, but do you understand? These are all the subconscious things we have to wipe out. Master added wryly, if they always returned here, they might find out too soon. That's a horrible remark, and Swami comments on it. That last comment must seem strange to anyone who imagines God as eager for man to be redeemed. And man thinks, how could he not want that if he loves us? In this perception too, however, man's perception of the cosmic verities needs expansion. The truth is the cosmos was designed by God. His plan was for us not to find out too soon, that is, realize our need to return to our source in God until we decide to do so of our own free will. Mm. Many incentives. I think I'm going to take a break right at our own free will. Let's take a little break. <laughs> Saganesh made a, a, an interesting point during the break about the refugee situation, which is interesting to contemplate, which is what, that, what it's doing is suddenly there are refugees from a part of the world that has been a little bit um, self, self-contained. There hasn't been a, a, a... I mean, there's been... Every country is amalgamating with every other, but this is a, going to be a real blending of cultures that has, haven't really blended that much. And it probably won't happen in the first generation, but you know, there's going to be a whole group of Syrians and uh, whoever else they're coming from who will then be born and raised in Germany or born and raised in England or born and raised in Italy or Hungary or Czechoslovakia or eventually America, who no matter what, where their parents came from and where they started, they're going to grow up in that one. And then again, all this, all of the fears and separations and misunderstandings and, and even all the cultural habits are all going to just start being dissolved. This is, this is the way in, in which... Um, God accomplishes his, his goals by creating situations that on the face of them seem catastrophic or not desirable, but in fact have some other, some other way that it's happening. Um, it, this is related to my comment last week and the week before about how many indigenous cultures are disappearing and even how many species are disappearing of plants and animals, which everyone thinks of as a bad thing. But what is, and it may or may not be a pleasant thing in the short term, but it also, what it really means, it's a transformation of what we have long thought of as the way things are. But I believe way underneath Greenland, there's, you know, that that Greenland used to be something quite different than it is right now, and conceivably even Antarctica was completely different. It's just... When it happens to us, we are trying to make the material world stay the way it is. We want to make it, we think it should be the way we've always known it to be. And when it starts morphing into something else because of what? 
because of the influence of the energy from the center of the galaxy toward which this planet is moving and is now closer. And therefore, when it gets all that extra energy, everything on it starts changing. And we, we are one little jiva in its one little incarnation, says, no, no, no. It doesn't mean that we're behaving well. Don't misunderstand me. But when God wants something done, he finds the means to have it done, or, or to put it a different way, forces everybody's karma plays together. And something happens. I may have mentioned in this same context when I was visiting a friend in New Delhi and he was talking about his daughter who went to school, has gone to college in Montreal from Delhi because in India there are top tier universities and then there's not anything, there's no second layer. And so she was like 97 percentile and you had to be 97.5. And so at 97... She suddenly had to leave the country to go to college, which, you know, was not fun for her parents and probably perhaps not fun for her. I don't know. She was already in Montreal, so I didn't know. Um, But the result is that the whole Indian culture is being exported by the young people, by, by these brilliant, highly educated, refined, you know, uh, culturally sophisticated people who are carrying their culture all over the world because they can't go to college in their own country because the government hasn't made enough universities or the quota system works against them, whatever it might be. But, you know, it's easy in the short term to stand back and say, those idiots, why didn't they get it together? You know, why are they cutting down the rainforest? Why aren't we protecting the wolves? Whatever you might be saying. But in the longer rhythm, many things that look like they shouldn't be happening really have to happen because there's no other way we're going to get there. This is, again, this is why this is a... Uh, to be at peace uh, with the world around you, at peace in your heart with the, what's going on in the world around you, and to have faith that God is in charge and it's not up to me and my ego, is a very fundamental to the spiritual path. So I find it easier instead of just saying, well, you know, God knows what he's doing. I, I kind of It helps me if I can have a little bit of reason to build around that. And that's why Swami writes here, the yugas were very fundamental to a lot of what Master did, and that's why I'm taking so much trouble to explain it to you, because he was always looking in that direction. Swamiji always was extremely, has always been, was always, extremely interested in all the innovative things. He would get those you know, cal- uh, catalogs of... Um, uh, Sharper Image and the Brookstone, that's what I was saying. I mean, he'd just look at all of them. He'd look at everything and he'd order a whole bunch of this stuff, you know. You put this thing on and it flashes lights and, you know, you get this one, you put it on your elbow and it's supposed to help your sciatica or whatever it is. But he was always just buying them, testing them, I'm sure. I don't know what they finally did with all that stuff, but he just, because he was always interested. He was always interested in where it was going because he had this, Dwapara Yuga point of view and he wanted to see what people were finding out and how they were understanding. Uh, he wasn't uh, at all in my day it used to be like this kind of thing. It was like, you know, where's, where, where are we going now? Master said all this is going to happen. Let's see where it leads. Yeah, very. We need to be the same way. Okay? Comments or questions? Yes. Just, uh, 
just going back um, <clears throat> to um, reincarnating. So in other words, if when I come back and say it's Satya Yuga and I'm not at that stage, I'm, I'm going to go someplace else then. Well, yeah. Okay. You'll just, you're, you're, but when you return from the astral world to the material world, and depending on whose book you're reading or what video you're watching, somehow or another you've got some guides around and you're all sitting around chatting, whether you're in the equivalent of the astral Starbucks exactly or what you're doing, I really don't know. Pictures depend depending on who you're talking to. Whether you sit in front of a computer screen and, you know, survey your parents, possible parents, possible planets. I, I don't know how it happens. But somehow or another you hover on the edge of getting ready to reincarnate and you have all these uh, potential influences and you, you are, 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 are drawn into how consciously, how deliberately, I really don't know. I mean, I don't know what it feels like. I don't remember what it feels like. Yes, Tom? So, can we think that... Um, so this planet is in Dwapara Yuga now, maybe our solar system or something, but if, the, if everything is kind of rotating around the central sun of this galaxy, then there's a lot of planets that are a lot closer to the sun. So they are maybe in higher ages... So it's a whole kind That's of what the system says. And, you know, if you ever look at the, you know, we're on the very edge of our galaxy. So there's this huge, I mean, there's just this, uh, you can't, your mind, your little mind, because, gosh, I mean, that's, isn't this the most important? Isn't this the center of? I mean, this is, this is why they had to forgive Galileo all that time, because Galileo started saying that we weren't the center of everything. And, you know, that implied that, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, if this isn't the center of everything, there were just a lot of... That's why the Catholic Church was so upset about it. But this is where Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, chose to incarnate, and this is the revelation, this is, you know, everything. What do you mean we're just one of many? It had a, a, a really deleterious effect on fundamental principles of the Church. So they had to get rid of him, shoot the messenger. But... Uh, Really, when you stop and think of us just being on the edge of the galaxy and how big the galaxy is and how many little universes like this are just going on and, you know, people... And, and this is the prototype. That's what Swami said. Uh, this is based on the spiritual eye. This, our physical body. Five-pointed star of the spiritual eye. And he says, I believe it's in here somewhere too, that every, all, all beings look essentially like this. Because this is based on the spiritual eye. This isn't random. And so all, all creatures all go toward the spiritual eye. Because that's, that's, that's our source. When we, when we leave material manifestation, we go up to that. So when we come out, we imitate it. That's why all the little, even in science fiction, they tend to look like this. They have arms and legs and little faces. Or big, or big faces or whatever. Yeah. Okay, moving right along. We're back to other planets again. <laughs> so, many incentives are, giving us, are given to us outwardly to inspire us to seek a higher reality. There are nature's countless beauties. There is the amazing adaptability and precision evident in the natural order, the signs of a mighty guiding intelligence. And there are inspiring qualities in human nature which sensitive people, as they become aware of them, 
want to develop in themselves. I thought that was a very interesting paragraph. He's just talking about how in this world, you know, God um, creates us with this plan that we have to see through um, the illusion of the material world being the ultimate source of our satisfaction until we understand and recognize that there's a higher reality that we ourselves want to go to. And then he says incentives. And he, he lists three, which are just lovely. Nature itself, that, that you see something that's just so beautiful and you can sense in the observation or the experience of it that there's more than what you already know. If, and and there's, so there's a certain longing that awakens or a certain sense of, po- of the possible. Uh, I recall when we uh, climbed uh, to, to the bottom of Bridal Falls in New Zealand, which was, it's a very high, it looks like a bridal veil when it falls, that's why they call it, I think they call it Bridal Veil Falls. And it's very high up, and I, I saw a picture of myself recently just sitting at the bottom, and I just remembered just how, how long you could just sit there and just watch this thing just falling and listen to it, and it was so amazing. And there's this other place, Hookah Falls. This was, these were New Zealand places. And you, we go to Hookah Falls, and we just pull into this parking lot, this rather big parking lot with a place where you could buy coffee, so we stopped and bought coffee. And, and then, you know, everybody's just kind of wandering over, and there's all these international tourists, and it's just, there's just nothing. It's just this big parking lot. And you walk over to this little bridge, and you kind of cross this bridge, and then you look down, and it, it wasn't really particularly wide, maybe not a, even wider than this room, but this huge river somehow gets channeled right into there, and for reasons I don't know, the whole thing turns white and this exquisite um, uh, sort of aquamarine color, just unreal. So this enormous amount of water is funneling through, and whatever is the cause of it, it's this, like this astral uh, blue and white. And you know, you're, just, you're suddenly standing on this bridge, and the parking lot's over there, and the little coffee machine's over here, but what is going on in front of you is so far outside of anything I'd ever seen before, that you know, just all of us are just glued, just watching this. And the effect of it is, is just, it makes you want something. I mean, that, and interestingly, it just awakens some kind of, that you can't even name, but there's, it makes you want something that you don't already have. And it makes you want something as beautiful as that. And it, it's so sweet the way Swami says, it's an incentive that God put into this world. To, 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 it's, it's a hidden clue. It's a hint. It's a hint that what you are is not everything. There's something else going on here. Now, some people think, was it Master who talked about this? Uh, just two, you know, two different people standing looking at Hookah Falls, let's say. And I'm thinking about merging into the infinity. And someone else says, like, Wow, think how much electricity you could get out of that if you could just harness all that power. <laughs> you know? So everybody thinks of it differently. It's an, a different incentive depending on who you are. And some just use it to just keep uh, playing this game. And others use it to think about going somewhere completely else. But it's a hint. You have to wake up to it.
And then the second hint he plants in is the amazing adaptability and precision evident in the natural order, the signs of a greater intelligence. And that also, just depending on how your mind is oriented, that you're just so impressed that you just begin to wonder, you know, what, what could have created this? How can I be part of this? And you even see yourself, you become interested in the medicine of your body and how, do, how does the eye see Biasa, who was very scientific all through his life, and he's the one who, uh, with Puru, wrote the book about the yugas, and he, he did a lot of scientific research in his life. And he talked about, when he was about eight or nine, he was an only child, and he lived a lot in his mind, even from a very young age. And he actually, he, he began to go myopic a little bit. Um, and he, he just needed glasses. But he spent, he spent almost a year thinking that it had something to do with the refraction of light. <laughs> and he was sort of doing all these different experiments and trying to figure out how the light was, you know, flowing in differently. And it, it just never crossed his mind that he needed glasses. He thought something completely else was happening. But from that orientation, you know, he gradually became aware that there was something else. There was just some other power here that, that he found through that way of thinking. And then the last one is what he says, is that we see, we see examples of other human beings who have capacities and abilities and qualities that are just so nurturing or uplifting or thrilling to us that it crosses our mind too that I could be more than I am. And whether that's just a, a, a self-sacrificing, loving mother, you know, a, a beautifully generous and happy-hearted child or a great saint. You know, whatever it is, you suddenly see these are the incentives. I don't, have to, I don't have to continue as I am. There's an alternative. Because until you think of there, until it occurs to you that there's an alternative, a great many people who don't uh, follow the spiritual path because they just don't know that there's an alternative. This is it. Just make the best of it. You die. That's the end of the story. But others of us have seen, noticed. And then he says, on the negative side, those are the positive incentives. On the negative side, the incentives are suffering and the repeated disappointment of all worldly hopes. Hmm. The ignoble qualities in human nature also cause anyone of refinement to repudiate such qualities in himself as base and ugly and to aspire to the spiritual heights within. So it also goes the other way. You just, you, you, see, you see things happening around you that are so uh, foreign to your own nature that you, you become, you become determined to purge out of your own heart anything that resembles it at all. You know, you, you yourself may not be as blatantly evil as some, but you, you see in yourself... Um, the, the tiny seeds of that same behavior. And, and it's a tremendous incentive um, to be different. And then, of course, suffering is just, unfortunately, a really good teacher. And so we just keep trying to make things work in this world, and it keeps not working. And after a while, we notice. After, after a time, the tiny rebel surrenders. <laughs> after a time, how long is that time? But we, we just cling 
this, this time, this time it's going to work. I know last time it didn't and the 3,797 times before it, it didn't work, but this time it will. It really will be different this time, I know. I absolutely know. This time it will. It will. But then it isn't. <laughs> the disappointment of all worldly hopes. I know it sounds so cynical, but it's just the truth. And even when you get what you want and you have it perfectly, it's not enough. So you get disappointed both ways. Swamiji made the wonderful statement that we learn from disappointment, but we learn more from fulfillment. Because if we're disappointed, we can still imagine it's going to work. It's going to make us happy. But when we actually finally do get what we want, which eventually we always get what we want, every desire is eventually fulfilled, but then you recognize that it still isn't enough. You know, there's just all those other positive incentives. There's more. That's why they say there's more suicides among wealthy people than among poor people. One would think, when you're in the middle, that the lot of a poor person is so miserable that why don't they just kill themselves? Why don't they just mass suicides? Why do they go on living at all? But it's because they think that tomorrow they're going to win the lottery and then everything's going to be great. And so you just go on because you think you will. I read somewhere that within five years, almost everyone who wins the lottery is back at whatever economic level they started at. Yeah, that was just, I mean, that's a random factoid that I think is true or something close to it. Very few people who win the lottery actually change their karmic condition. They just, uh, one person who inherited money didn't inherit a vast fortune, but he said, and he, he just ran through it in a matter of a couple of years. And he actually was honest enough to admit, he said, if it had been five million, I would have spent it all. It was just sort of like he, he couldn't hold that position. It is like being a, being a little broke and struggling was just really who he was. And so when he had the opportunity to shift it, he just couldn't. He just made sure that he went back as fast as he could. Interesting. Weird, huh? We are so strange. <laughs> Any comments or thoughts? There are, of course, also many incentives for continuing to play in delusion. The divine spark within man must be kindled by his own personal longing for the truth and not by mind-numbing proofs of God's existence. (laughs) You can't persuade someone to seek God, in other words. If if they're not hungry, it really doesn't matter really how fine the menu is or what a bargain the meal is. If you're not hungry, you won't eat. So you have to pay attention and not try to persuade people to do what they won't do. In, in that context, I remember the book Stephen Levine wrote about uh, death and dying, which was uh, one of the groundbreaking books in the 70s. And he, he quoted in there a letter that someone wrote him and said, you know, I'm so excited. My Jewish grandmother's in Brooklyn in a, a, a home there, and she's dying, and I'm going to sit by her bed and read her the Tibetan book of the dead. <laughs> and he wrote back and he said, why don't you sit by her bed and sing her Yiddish love songs? <laughs> It's like, you know, the Tibetan Book of the Dead won't make any sense to her. You can't persuade her with mind-numbing definitions. You have to touch her where she really lives. So, the Lord wants each individual to desire him alone. Salvation is not served on a silver platter by smiling angels. (laughs) 
Each person must strive by arduous effort to become worthy of it. The self-sacrifice demanded of those who seek truth is perceived at last as being no sacrifice at all, but the essential but the eternal fulfillment of perfect bliss. First, however, one must accept joyfully that nothing anywhere in this world exists that is worth the seeking. Now, this is the ironic part of all of this, and it's just so hard to grasp because there is this stage where it all sounds so grim. And I mean, I've had people complain to me, why do you always talk about how awful this world is? You know, I'm pretty happy, (laughs) kind of. And I, I have really actually tried to tone it down a little. But there's this middle stage where you're almost affirming. You know, you just, you need to keep reminding yourself. And a lot of, Christian uh, practice based on the suffering of Jesus goes really heavy in that direction about what a veil of tears this is and how we all suffer and and it just it's not that's not attractive that doesn't actually turn out to be an incentive sometimes it just makes you rebel, rebel but you must finally accept joyfully that oh look there's really nothing here that that there has to come a point where that's a very cheerful thought far from being a tragic thought, it's a cheerful thought because um, the, the, the corollary of that is that bliss exists and the bliss is with God and that I will find what I want. I just have to look over here instead of over here. And if you know that what you seek exists, then what is there to mourn? And that's why, as Swami writes, every saint who actually realizes God feels like it's all just been fine and that even worse even more I say worse because even more confusing to our minds that there never really was a problem that, that, that all of this perceived suffering was never even really suffering at all the bliss was always behind it it's 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 a lot but uh, it's very important and we have to just keep we have to keep leaning into it in a certain sense. Even if we don't quite get it, don't give up. Just keep sort of going there. That's what Swamiji said. It's easy to think, you know, to become very cynical about the world the older you get. But he wrote, the older he gets, the more he realizes that God's presence is everywhere and therefore wherever he is is heaven. And so no matter what is happening, it's, it's as much heaven as any place that you'll ever be. And then you just sort of watch all these souls learning their lessons and it, looks, it just looks completely different to you. Even if you have compassion for their delusion, you know that, see, this is the illusion of time, all these things, that the bliss that they'll experience is now, even though while they're in time, they won't know that. We, we won't know that. Fascinating, isn't it? All right, that's it. That's a sort of semi-cheerful note to send you home on, isn't it? Could be worse. Okay, we'll do one more class that we did. uh, We finished number 40, and we got halfway through number 41.